Welcome to Supposedly. Hi. Hi. I'm Rue. And I'm Jesse, and we're going to be telling you some interesting, creepy stories today, like we always do. Yeah. So how have things been? Oh, well. Um, <laughs> I've been good. I listened to one of our podcasts, and oh. I feel like I talk too fast, so I'm trying to slow that down. Okay. Yeah. I can also slow you down. I can make you sound like very slow and I don't editing. need to sound very <laughs> slow. I just need to <laughs> be a slower. Okay. How are uh, you doing? Yeah, I'm pretty good. Nothing too exciting is happening in the world. Yeah? Yeah, it's still 2020, the hellscape yeah. that is this year. Normally we'd have probably a lot more stuff to talk about if COVID wasn't happening and probably yeah I feel like we say this every week though because it's always true that's true uh all right well should we get into some stories let's get into some stories all right I think I'm first this week right yeah and I have no idea what you're doing or even what your topic is okay uh I'm super excited about this one because I haven't it was hard to find information on it and so I don't think that it's been widely covered so I'm kind of excited to be one of the first podcasts out there to talk about this so I'm excited. To, I am too. I mean, that's a lot of buildup. It is. It is. So today we are journeying out to California. Um, okay. Which I hope that you're doing good if you're out there. Um, sorry. And I hope you are breathing some clean, wonderful air. So we are headed to the Canfield Moreno Estate, which is a mansion in the Silver Lake District of Los Angeles. Is it? A haunted mansion? It is a haunted mansion, supposedly. Hey. Okay, so in 1918, Daisy Canfield, daughter of Charles Canfield, who was the oilman and real estate developer. So she, Daisy was his daughter. She was the heiress to the Pan American Petroleum fortune. So she commissioned Robert D. Farquhar to design her dream estate. So Ooh. talking about the Canfield family... Uh, briefly, I'm going to mention that Daisy's mother, Chloe, was murdered by an employee who had previously been fired for beating their horses. And Chloe comes up later, but she was an awesome lady and died really tragically. Okay, so he, who beat the horses? So the Canfield family had this dude. He was like a hired hand. Okay. And he was whooping their horses. And so they were like, yo you can't beat my horse, like, I need you to leave, and they fired him, and he retaliated by coming back, and he murdered Chloe. Oh, and Chloe is? Daisy's mom. Okay, gotcha. Yep. All right, sorry, I was a little confused there. Yeah, no, so, like, if Daisy is the oil princess, Chloe was the oil queen. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, So, this mansion was built in 1923, and it's this beautiful Mediterranean revival style, which sits on about four and a half acres, which, in LA speak, is a shit ton of property wow um and it was called the most beautiful home in hollywood well i mean it sounds amazing yeah no it's like i'm gonna send you the link later because it's like so beautiful so here's a description from the website Eighteen thousand square foot main residence stables tack house ice plant greenhouse three staff cottages and garages for five motor cars the mansion would contain a formal dining room, den, breakfast room, paneled bar, living room with soaring 25-foot-high stenciled wood beam ceilings, six-bedroom suites, and a marble hand-tiled swimming pool. The grounds were adorned with rose gardens, a citrus orchard, grape arbor, terraced fountains, and a wishing well. Oh, if only I had a grape arbor. 
right? Like, my life would be so different with a citrus orchard. And a wishing well. How wonderful it would be. How wonderful. I want a wishing well. How, do you, how does one get a wishing well? Just like Your dad's in oil. Okay, fair. <laughs> <laughs> so, in 1923, Daisy and her husband, silent film superstar Antonio Moreno, moved in. I do really briefly want to talk about Antonio's career. So, this guy, he's super handsome. He was a really successful silent film star, and he had roles alongside Greta Garbo, Clara Bow, and so he was born in Madrid and often got, like, these stereotypical Latin lover roles because of his oh, looks. Oh, yeah. Okay. But then... Kind of like Desi Arnaz. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. But then with the advent of talkies, his career quickly fell off because people heard his heavy Spanish accent and no longer liked him because they couldn't understand him. Of course. You know, a lot of silent film actors uh-huh. ended up not being able to make the leap into the talkies because yeah. of weird accents or mm-hmm. people not liking their voices or just yeah. not being able to deliver lines. Yeah. I think this is like really relevant though, considering how we're having these conversations of like the fetishization of other races and like mm-hmm. wanting to be entertained by people who are of different backgrounds and races, but like not actually caring about their culture. Yeah. And so it's like, wow, this is such an old problem. (laughs) Nothing is new. So Antonio and Daisy frequently threw like these fabulous Sunday afternoon socials where they'd host like the biggest names in silent film and other like just elite superstars. Like they were the great Gatsby kind of situation. Like that's the caliber we're talking. Parties. Oh yeah. With their wishing well. So Daisy and Antonio's marriage lasted until they separated in 1928. And, you know, so they kind of moved out and they're like, I don't know what to do with this big old house. And so in 1929, they turned the estate into the Chloe P. Canfield Memorial Home, which was a school that taught orphaned girls through the Great Depression. In addition to the school, the Canfield family also established a scholarship fund for many of the students so that they would be able to go to college, which was huge because at this time, like most women weren't able to pursue higher education. And so Daisy's mom, Chloe, was considered to be this great humanitarian and philanthropist. And so this school was like a really amazing way to honor her legacy. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, What a nice little way to honor her. Right. So since she had like such a tragic end, I did want to include that there is at least a silver lining. A little ray of hope there. Yeah. Yeah. That her, her memory gets to be honored. So on February 23rd, uh, 1933, Daisy died on the way home from a party from injuries she sustained in a freak auto accident after the car her chauffeur was driving plunged off of Mulholland Drive, which is considered one of the most dangerous roads in America. Yes, I've heard of that one before. Yeah, and there's actually a car graveyard below the steep cliff because removing all the cars is too expensive. So there's like different decades of cars just still down there. cool to see. Yeah, uh, I saw in my notes, um, there was a photographer who actually, like, did a whole project with those, and it was, oh, that's it was cool. super cool. Will you hit, post those on our, our Facebook page? Yeah, definitely. I would love to see those. Yeah, they're super cool. Um, and so Daisy is buried on the property, and there are people who believe that her death may not actually have been an accident, um, and that's kind of where the uneasy feelings and the haunting attributed to the property is mm-hmm. is because like there was some sketch stuff about her chauffeur that maybe she was also murdered and Ooh. now like can't find peace i don't know if that's true but that's what we're working with so in 1950 the estate was gifted to the franciscan missionary sisters of the immaculate conception 
The sisters were immigrating from Mexico and looking for a safe place to provide a home for orphan children. In 1953, the estate reopened as the Immaculate Conception Convent and Home for Girls. The next year, the estate was consecrated as a chapel, which started its long tradition of holding weddings. And they had it until 1988 when they applied for um, historical status, which was granted by the city of Los Angeles. And then in 1998, they sold it to Dana Hollister, who's a designer and like maybe a low-key gentrifier. Um, but she bought the property from the sisters in escrow, which is a thing that I don't personally have enough money to truly understand. But oh, escrow is, I'm going to take a stab at this. And okay. I'm probably going to be very wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'll believe every word. Okay. Escrow, isn't that when you buy a property, but you have a certain number of days to back out of the sale? Okay. Um, before you take full ownership. So basically, it's kind of like the lemon law of houses. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. If I'm correct, which yeah. I'm probably not. <laughs> um, and also, apparently, like, if another buyer came along, she would, like, relinquish it. So I think that you're at least on the right track. Okay, hey. Because that's kind of okay. what I found. I don't really know. If some rich real estate mogul wants to write in, we'd love to hear from you. <laughs> So Hollister, or just anyone who's ever bought a house. Or, or that, too. <laughs> Who I assume is rich because I'm a broke-ass millennial. We're uh, all renters. <laughs> yeah, so she wanted to open the estate as a boutique hotel. Since purchasing the estate, Hollister has renovated and restored it, paying for the work by hosting filming, photo shoots, and events. She's used the space for charity events like concerts, benefiting music education, and free health care. And she also added a recording studio to the mansion. Ooh. Yeah. So since renovations, tons of people you'd recognize have worked in some capacity at the estate, whether recording music, shooting music videos, photo shoots, or even films. Some of these big names are Elton John, Jack White, Johnny Depp, Gwen Stefani, Stevie Nicks, Pharrell Williams, Ariana Grande, George Clooney. Um, probably most recognizable for the estate itself is it was the house in Scream 3. So if you have seen uh-huh. Scream 3, that's like the pool that they're at is I have not cool. seen Scream oh, 3. You should. But I know in LA a lot of these famous mansions are often yeah. used for shoots and stuff so. Yep. Um it was also the school Jamie Lee Curtis's character taught at in Halloween 20 years later in Britney Spears's My Prerogative video she crashes her Porsche into the pool <laughs> which I wonder if like if Daisy is the ghost and she's like simulating a car accident if that brought anything up. I want to know what kind of freaking insurance you have to have to crash a, a car into a historical pool? So much insurance. All of the insurance. <laughs> Something else I don't have enough money to understand. I'm like basic Britney coverage. Spears insurance. Yes. Yeah. Uh, all right. So that's a lot of history. Let's get spooky. So like I've mentioned, it's believed that Daisy's ghost is still hanging around and sometimes maybe wreaking havoc. Uh, critically acclaimed last resort musicians, Papa Roach. Oh, man. Okay. Are maybe the Zach Baggins of music. I could see that. No, uh, Limp Biscuit is the Zach Baggins of music. No, Zach Baggins is the Zach Baggins Baggins of music. music. Don't you remember that he has an album? He does. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Sharon here. Or whatever. So, it's Rhonda. It's Rhonda, right? <laughs> I don't remember. Oh, God. We'll post okay. a Zach Baggins song on our Facebook group as well. Yeah, but we don't own the rights to this music or whatever you're supposed to say. 
Yeah, we can still share it though. Okay, we can yeah, share perfect. it and be like, hey, go. check out this new song by Zach Baggins, the Zach Baggins of music. Oh God. Okay. So Papa Roach has spoken out pretty publicly about their experiences with the Canfield Moreno estate, which Hollister has renamed to the Paramore estate. Was 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 it their last resort? <laughs> I was figuring out how to make that joke and I'm so <laughs> glad you beat me to Did it. They experience suffocation, no, no breathing. breathing. <laughs> my favorite parody of that song is cut my life into pizza this is my plastic fork <laughs> okay. is that a weird owl one no i think it's just like a tumblr meme okay anyways so they lived in the mansion for six months which Why? i didn't i didn't realize Papa Roach had that kind of money right like in the 90s sure i i guess yeah uh, so anyways, they lived there for six months while recording, and they were excited to have, like, this fully immersive recording experience, and Hollister was straight up with them and was like, bro, it's haunted, but, like, go off, do your thing, live here for half a year, <laughs> and oh. so lead singer Jacoby Shaddix told the Las Vegas Sun that he was skeptical about ghosts going in, so he was like, oh yeah, whatever, it's haunted, but he quickly changed his mind. He expressed that he was suffering from writer's block and called on Daisy for some inspiration beyond the grave. What? Okay, one, she's not your ghostly muse. Right. She's not Two. your ghost writer. Yeah. Hey. Oh, hey. That, was, that was better. Can we go back and you just say that instead and you edit that in? <laughs> that was good. That was better than mine. I tried. <laughs> So he said the spiritual energy was, quote, floating around, plus our own creative energy, plus arts and artifacts filled the house and every piece had a history. We set up our equipment in the place and there was this constant flow of creative creativity and ideas. I think it had a massive influence on our sound and writing and the whole attitude behind the record. I'm Okay. <laughs> I'm really trying not to read it in a Baggins voice, but I yeah. don't think I'm what, succeeding. What record did they record there? Uh, the Paramore Sessions. They named it after the hotel. Oh, interesting. Mm. I don't know that I've heard anything off there, so I'm kind of I haven't either. I might go listen Check to it. Just, just yeah. to see. Yeah. Yeah. So Shattuck said that the first experience they had was while recording their song, Crash. We had this loop going through the PA, he said. And every time we came up to this section where it goes, I'm going to crash, the PA, the computer, and all the power in the house would die. We were like, this is just way too weird. And so, like, there was some speculation that, like, because of how Daisy died, there was, like, that was a triggering phrase. I don't know. Okay, PA in, in television production means production assistant. Please tell me that the PA on didn't just die. <laughs> She just every lost time. power. No, uh, PA and recording is like your sound system. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I, I just for some reason I'm on such on a television. Person she was supposed to bring us lattes and then just had a heart attack. She kept dying. I don't kept know why. Dying. Uh, and it's the chorus, so we said that a lot. No. Like a lot, a lot. <laughs> uh, so he also reported that he went to Daisy's grave and meditated and asked her for help. And said that after his meditation, he wrote six pages, writing one song and a whole, writing a whole song in one go. Okay. Um, I'm just impressed that the lead singer of Papa Roach meditates. You know, I I'm not, not. I feel like that's on brand somehow. Really? I yeah. don't I don't feel like that's on brand at all. But I learned a lot about Papa Roach, surprisingly. Okay. And also, apparently their name is because his, the lead singer's grandfather 
his last name was Roach, but it had a T in it. It was like R-O-A-T-C-H. And so Papa okay. Roach is actually a way to honor his grandpa. Oh, that's actually sweet. Right. I thought it I'm was like cockroaches. Some, yeah, I'm gaining some respect for I, Papa. Yeah, so I think maybe he does meditate. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Go, go Papa um, Roach. You're going to lose a little respect maybe because there's a lot that I'm about to say. You know what? I figure it's just like one of those graphs that keeps going up and down mm-hmm. and up and down mm-hmm. and up and down. Yeah. Okay. So he says, it was a fucking chaotic time for the band. My drummer was going through a divorce and he was just out of his fucking mind, sniffing big lines of coke, banging strippers in the ass, going berserk. And there goes that newfound respect. (laughs) Plummeted a little bit. (laughs) Uh, And then he said that he was battling alcoholism. He said, I'm an alcoholic and I lost my mind making the record, eating pills like candy, going crazy. So if you're an alcoholic, please get help. Yep. There is help out there. Dealing with some stuff. I don't know that we attribute that to ghosts. Uh, I think that's more your addiction, but... Uh, Nor do we contribute to doing cocaine and banging strippers in the butt to go see their... Okay, go on. Okay. Uh, Anyway, so Dave Buckner, who I think is their drummer, said during the making of their album there that they kept hearing footsteps and people singing in the house, which is very eerie to me to be like you're singing and then you stop singing and someone else is singing that's freaky so are but were they singing papa roach songs were the ghosts just like singing this is my last this is where you should use your transatlantic because it's in the 20s and 30s i know but (laughs) i just don't have it in me today that's fair uh anyway so yeah they they didn't sing in transatlantic it was spoken I feel like if you're a ghost, you can do whatever the hell you want. Okay, fine. Yeah. Uh, anyways, so doors would also, like, open and close. So that's the Papa Roach experience. Next, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the Black Parade. We're going to talk about My Chemical Romance, a band yes! I know way too much about. Ditto. Um, let's, let's do this. So in 2006, they decided that they were also going to live at the mansion while recording the Black Parade album. And they've been super open about their experience as well. Apparently going as far as to add like journal entries from the time they stayed there in their um, album, if you buy it on vinyl. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. So apparently things got so bad for the band that they left early and finished recording in another studio. But so wait, okay. are we to believe yes. that the ghosts like Papa Roach more than My Chemical Romance? No, I think we're to believe that they were so distracted with their pills and strippers that they were less affected. Cocaine, alcohol, and strippers. Yes. Yeah, (laughs) I feel like at that point you don't really notice the ghosts as much. You're like, I'm busy. I got something else to do. (laughs) Okay. Um... Anyways, okay, so bassist Mikey Way got the blue room. Apparently they all, like, drew straws and decided who would get which room. And apparently the blue room is the most haunted room in the joint. And so Mikey said in an interview, when we arrived in Los Angeles, we moved into an extremely haunted mansion called the Paramore. This house had a huge history of odd and mysterious things occurring inside. Some of us laughed it off. Others, cough, cough, me, found this house frightening. As luck would have it, I would wind up in the scariest and later found from past residents, most haunted room. To add to it, there was a single blue light bulb hanging from the ceiling that didn't provide light, but an eerie glow. Dogs barking at thin air, doors slamming in front of people, Frank and Gerard, and bathtubs filling with water when no one was home. We had to get out of that house by the end of it. The place was just a storm cloud in the shape of a house. Ooh. Yeah. Look, sometimes the ghost just wants to take a nice warm bath when everybody's away. I mean, that's what I do. 
I'm like, oh, I can house myself. I'm going to take a hot bath to relax a little bit. Wax the wine, some candles. It'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. So Mikey ended up getting so scared and upset by his experience that he ended up sleeping on the floor of lead singer Gerard Way's room, which is kind of adorable since that's his big brother. (laughs) Like he's still just this little boy like, I'm scared. Can I sleep with you? Can I I come sleep with you? Yeah. Uh, and so Gerard actually had his own experiences in the house reporting, quote, night terrors, where he felt someone grabbing his throat and he was unable to move during these encounters. So I'm feeling like that's sleep paralysis. Oh, definitely. Um, he also reported that he kept having nightmares about people he loved dying and like fire. So Gerard wrote the song Sleep after one of these encounters and like it ended up on the album. He didn't necessarily intend that it would, but they liked it so much that it did. And so this song used actual recordings from his experiences. So I guess he would like wake up in the way that some people like dream journal. He would like record um, himself speaking about what he dreamed about. And that re- recording can be heard on the song on the album. This ghost is kind of like the Penny Lane of Almost Famous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's just, she's in all the songs. Yep. Yep. Yeah, she's just very adjacent to all of the uh, recordings. Daisy's living it up. She's yeah. got and lots of songs dedicated right? and, or about her, inspired yeah. by her. So Gerard said, it feels like, or it felt like something was coming after us. Every time we turned a corner, it was staring at us. We couldn't escape it. The band apparently came across this beautiful painting of an angel above the mantle of a fireplace. After one of them moved something, the painting apparently had like a demon reaching for the angel's feet. And they were super freaked out by this. But, like, I've been to the Vatican Museum, and that's just 85% of all religious art. It's just, like, an <laughs> angel, but there's a demon, so you should be good. And I was like, okay. Like, I don't, I don't feel like that's that scary, but I can see if you weren't expecting it, it would kind of freak you out. So Mikey Way ended up leaving first, citing that the fog over the Paramore was exacerbating his issues with alcohol and depression. And he felt that leaving when he did actually saved his life because of how really? things were feeling. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, The band and fandom had an inside joke about the album being cursed. And like while shooting music videos for the single, their drummer Bob Breyer got second and third degree burns, which ultimately resulted in gangrene. Oh, man. And Gerard Way. terrible. Yeah. And Gerard Way tore a ligament in his ankle during shooting. They also had like really weird bouts of like, quote unquote, food poisoning that canceled shows There was stuff with some of their roadies, like, yeah. Um, And then their drummer ended up suffering a wrist injury so bad that he lost feeling in his fingers and had to leave the band while seeking treatment. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, I know there's not, like, a a lot of concrete evidence. There's a couple, you know, stories from bands. But it seems really interesting that, like, this estate doesn't have a super dark history. Like, yes, Daisy died, and that's horrible and tragic. But, like, this isn't The Shining. This isn't, like... Oh my god, this hotel, like, we have one confirmed death who's buried on the property, but there's a lot, like, you shouldn't be getting gangrene because Daisy died and, like, wants to be a featured artist on your track. Yeah, true. I mean, maybe a lot of sadness happened there. Yeah, I mean, with their divorce and stuff, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, my my hypothesis... When in doubt, sage it out. Clear um, it out a little bit. My hypothesis is that, so since Hollister has tried to restore it to, like, its Mm -hmm. natural or, like, how it was, 
she's brought in a lot of antiques and so i'm almost wondering if it's stuff that oh. has attachments to the furniture or whatever that she's brought kind in. of builds on to things yeah I that's kind of that. my that she has some of your victorian chairs that have people still sitting in them kind of thing except they're mean um i kind of want those chairs i know <laughs> i know anyways if you're feeling brave enough to stay at the paramore slash canfield moreno estate you can for the cool price of a G a night, which like, it's beautiful. I kind of want to, but I don't I mean, feel inclined to drop a thousand dollars on it. Between the two of us, it'd be 500. How many rooms are there? Um, at least six. Okay. We could make that work. You, me, Christy, Drew. Scoop. I think it might be per room. I don't know if it's the whole estate. I'm not sure, uh. but I'm down to sleep on the floor like Mikey Way did. <laughs> like, some of us will take the bed some of us will just sleep on the floor we'll record an episode in there and then kill some PAs <laughs> whoa 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 we're not the type of production that has PAs right well that's fair but that's the story of the Canfield Moreno Paramore Estate in Silver Lake California I dig it yeah I think 500 bucks you and I could I think so. I mean, I mean it's, it'd be a point, lot of money at some point, we will get so, I'm manifesting right now, we will get so yes. famous that we're touring, and we can write it off as a business expense. I don't know about famous, Here's, I, but I, I feel like at some point, we're going to be able to at least have a Patreon where we can <laughs> do fun things. Yeah, definitely. All right. All right, so. What did you bring? It's something we've kind of talked about in the past, oh, but okay. not really. I told you I was going to do it in the future. Yeah. Any guesses? Uh, the chupacabra? And no, uh, it's not the chupacabra. Okay. It is Julianne Kopec. Oh, okay, sweet. I was like, Julianne Moore, because that was literally the only Julianne I could think of. And I was like, what did she do? No, I'm super excited. Tell me everything. All right, I will. Okay, so... She did an amazing interview with BBC that she tells her story firsthand, and there's a great article on it, so I'm going to be using that article and basically reading it verbatim, because anytime I can tell a story through yeah. someone's direct quotes, I feel like that's so much better. Definitely. But let me go ahead and set the scene. So Julianne Kopeck was born in October 10th, 1954. That's coming up soon, right around the corner. And she was born in Lima, Peru. She was the only child, and her parents' names were Hans Wilhelm Kopeck, who was a biologist, and her mother, who was an ornithologist, Maria Kopeck. When she was 14, her parents left to Lima to establish Panguana. Okay. Panguana? Pangi? P-A-N-G-U-A-N-A. Yeah. Panguana. Okay, so it was a research station in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. She kind of became this little bit of a jungle child. Have you ever seen the wild thornberries? Yeah, she I was like our to think Eliza. of Eliza. She was yeah. our Eliza Thornberry, and she learned all sorts of survival techniques, as you would have to have living in the jungle. Yeah. But educational authorities disapproved, and she was forced to return to um, Deutschschule Lima Alexander von Humboldt to take oh, her examinations. My. Now, I might have said that wrong. Basically, she's forced to return to this this school to kind of take her final examinations to graduate right. high school. So her mother was working when 
Julianne's about to graduate from high school. Mm -hmm. The mother had wanted to return to Panguana on around the 19th or 20th of December in 1971, but Julianne really wanted to attend her own graduation ceremony, which was to be held on the 23rd of December. Maria decides that, okay, that's probably good for Julianne to stay longer and experience that. Yeah. So instead, they decide to schedule their flight on Christmas Eve. All of the flights were booked, aside from one. Lanza, we're just going to call it Lanza. Okay. Lanza Airlines. Her father urged her mother, Maria, mm-hmm. not to take that flight because it had a really poor reputation. Oh, okay. That airline was known to have a lot of things go wrong with them, but because it's the only option, they decided to book the flight. Yeah. Nonetheless. There wasn't exactly Skyscanner in the 70s, I suppose. I really wouldn't know. <laughs> No, that's the app that, like, finds, like, the cheapest flight. So, now that I've kind of set the stage for you, I'm going to switch over and read uh, this BBC article, because it's all direct quotes from her on her story, and I just think it's so much more powerful to hear firsthand. Yeah. So, it was Christmas Eve, 1971, and everyone was eager to get home. We were angry because the plane was seven hours late. Oh, my God. There's that crappy airline. I hate flying so much. Suddenly, we entered into a very heavy, dark cloud. My mother was anxious, but I was okay. I liked flying. Ten minutes later, it was obvious that something was very, very wrong. There was heavy turbulence, and the plane was jumping up and down. Parcels and luggage were falling from the locker. There were gifts, flowers, and Christmas cakes flying around the cabin. When we saw lightning around the plane, I was scared. My mother and I held hands, and we were unable to speak. Other passengers began to cry and weep and scream. So, after doing a little research, the plane was struck by lightning and began to break up. Jeez. And fall apart. After about 10 minutes, I saw a very bright light on the outer engine on the left. Hmm. My mother said very calmly, that is the end. It's all over. Those were the last words I ever heard from her. The plane jumped down and went into a nosedive. It was pitch black and people were screaming. And then the deep roaring of engines filled my head completely. Suddenly, the noise stopped, and I was outside of the plane. I was in a freefall, strapped to my seat bench and hanging head over heels. The whispering of the wind was the only noise I could hear. I felt completely alone. I could see the canopy of the jungle spinning towards me. Then I lost consciousness and remember nothing of the impact. Later, I learned that the plane had broken into pieces about two miles above the ground. I woke the next day and looked up into the canopy. (sighs) The first thought I had was, I survived an air crash. Now... Just a reminder, this is in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. Complete and utter jungle. I I shouted out... Two miles. Holy Jesus. That's... No wonder she passed out. That's a lot of fucking Gs to take. Oh, man. It's a miracle she survived, even strapped to her seat. Yeah, in the 70s when, like, seatbelts were, like, a a twine across your waist, basically. I shouted out for my mother, but I only heard the sounds of the jungle. I was completely alone. I had broken my collarbone, and they had some deep cuts on my legs, but my injuries weren't serious. I realized later that I had just ruptured a ligament in my knee, but I could walk. I mean, good for her for realizing she ruptured a ligament in that yeah. term terminology. Well, I'm like, oh my god, to be 17, like, at least she's Ooh. 
Dude, I've had arthritis since I was like a child. <laughs> a done ligament to my knee and it's over, bro. And like your collarbone? I mean, you don't realize how big a deal that is, but like I have tattoos on my collarbone and I couldn't even like turn my head while I was getting the tattoo because you don't realize how much all that musculature is all involved. Like every time that you move, your collarbones feel it. like I can't even imagine being in the jungle, your knees busted up, you've just taken all these G's, and you broke your freaking cut. Like, how? That's why I love this story Not so much. Not to imagine the emotional trauma. Well, yeah, certainly. Before the crash, I had spent a year and a half with my parents on their research station only 30 miles away. I learned a lot about life in the rainforest, and that it wasn't too dangerous. It's not the green hell that the world always thinks it is. God, she's such a bad bitch. <laughs> right? It's not that bad. It's not that bad. You know. I could hear the planes overhead searching for the wreck, but it was a very dense forest and I couldn't see them. I was wearing a very short sleeveless mini dress and white sandals. I had lost one shoe, but I kept the other because I'm very short sighted and had lost my glasses. So I used that shoe to test the ground ahead of me as I walked. So she had it on her foot, and she was stepping to test the ground and make sure it was firm as she walked. And everything's blurry, so she's just seeing, like, a wall of green. Pretty much. Oh, my God. Snakes are camouflaged there, and they look yeah. like dry leaves. I was and lucky you I... you have no glass. Oh, my God! <laughs> I was lucky I didn't meet them, or maybe just that I didn't see them. Oh, God! We've already discussed snakes are a big note for me. I so know already, that, yeah. already I'm out. Jesus. I found a small creek and walked in the water because I knew it was safer. Mm-hmm. At the crash site, I had found a bag of sweets. When I had finished them, I had nothing more to eat and was very afraid of starving. Oh. It was very hot and very wet, and it rained several times a day, but it was cold in the night, and to be alone in that mini dress was very difficult. On the fourth day, I heard the noise of a landing king vulture, which I recognized from my time at my parents' reserve. I was afraid. Bird person. Ornithologist. Yeah. I. Is that a bird person? Yeah, an ornithologist is. They study birds. Oh. Yeah. I I was afraid because I knew they can only land when there's a lot of carnage, and I knew it was bodies from the crash. Oh man, that's rough. When I turned a corner in the creek, I found a bench with three passengers rammed headfirst into the earth. I was paralyzed by panic. It was the first time I had seen a dead body. I thought my mother could be one of them, but when I touched the corpse with a stick, I saw the woman's toenails were painted. My mom netherooked, polished her toes. Oh my god. I was immediately relieved, but then I felt ashamed of that thought. By the tenth day, I couldn't stand properly, and I drifted along the edge of a large river I had found. I felt so lonely, like I was in a parallel universe far away from any human being. Ten days. That's, oh my God, like that's so long. Oh man. I thought I was hallucinating when I saw a really large boat. When I went to touch it and realized it was real, but it was like an adrenaline shot. But then I saw there was a small path into the jungle where I found a hut with a palm tree roof and an outboard motor and a liter of gasoline. Hmm. I had a wound on my right upper arm. It was infested with maggots about one centimeter long. Oh, don't like that at all. I remember our dog had the same infection and my father had poured kerosene in it. Mm. Ow! So I sucked the gasoline out and put it onto the wound. Sucked it out. Wow. 
The pain was intense as the maggots tried to get further into the wound. Ooh, I hate that so much. Oh, it just gets worse. I know. Uh. I pulled out about 30 maggots and was very proud of myself. I just... No, 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 no. I decided to spend the night there. The next day, I heard the voices of several men outside. It was like hearing the voices of angels. When they saw me, they were alarmed and stopped talking. They thought I was a kind of water goddess, a figure from local legend who is a hybrid of water dolphin and a blonde, white-skinned woman. That's Germans <laughs> for you. <laughs> well, Amazon. No, but I thought she was, she's German though, right? She's German, yes. Yeah. No, I was saying like she looks like this blonde water goddess because she's just a regular German lady. But I introduced myself in Spanish and explained what had happened. They treated my wounds and gave me something to eat the next day and took me back to civilization. The day after my rescue, I saw my father. He could barely talk and in the first moment we just held each other. For the next few days, he frantically searched the news for my mother. On the 12th of January, they found her body. Later, I found out that she also survived the crash, but was badly injured and she couldn't move. She died several days later. I dread to think what her last days were like. Mm -hmm. And that is the story of the sole survivor, oh, a 17-year-old girl. <sighs> I love that story so much. Like, every time I hear a different version of that story, it just fills me with such badass power feelings because she's just and she's so brilliant like uh I've heard a couple different like articles and stories and like she was like part of the reason that she stayed in the water was because she was like oh piranhas only attack you if the water is like not flowing oh. and it's like uh, the fact that you're 17 you just graduated high school and you're like you no, know the, that. the piranhas won't get me because you know the water is moving like oh my you're such a badass with your one shoe and no glasses be like oh the piranhas won't hurt me here um uh, she did return to the crash scene in 1998 and there's some great photographs from that um as well as a photograph of her attending her graduation the night prior in what I believe is the same dress. Wow. But I'm not 100% positive on that one. Oof. And she wrote a book, right? She did. She wrote a book. Um, her, now her name is, hang on, let me switch over here. Um, she's now known by the name of Julianne Diller, which is her married name. Nice. And she was the sole survivor of Lands of Flight 508. And they got shut um, down shortly thereafter, right? Like after that crash they were like um maybe we don't fly anymore i would hope so yeah i think i've heard that um, in other stories with her she serves as a librarian now at the bavarian state collection of zoology in munich and her autobiography is called when i fell from the sky and Dude. they have a german translation for it here but i have no idea how to say i it. was in munich yesterday i want to go visit her and just hug her and tell her she's amazing do it yeah that's so <laughs> tight really <laughs> i didn't realize she lived in munich that's so fucking dope that's two and um, a half hours away from me <laughs> go find her yes um okay so her experience is the subject of one feature-length film and one documentary. Oh, okay. It was, first was the low-budget, heavily fictionalized, oh man, mm -hmm. I Miracoli Avocado Acara by Italian filmmaker Giuseppe Marina Scorsese. Okay. Scorsese? Scott, I don't know. Scorsese. Scors I don't know, but it was released in English as Miracles Still Happen. Okay. And is sometimes even called the story of Julianne Kopec. Cool. And the film she's betrayed by Susan. Man, I'm getting all the hard words today. Susan 
Penhagalian, who's a okay. British actress. And she was also featured in the film Wings of Hope. Hmm. Right on. Yeah, I love that story. Thank you so much for covering that. Yeah, I really wanted to do it in her own words because I think it's so yeah. much more powerful. Yeah, well, that's um, such a good, like, oh my god, she's such a bad motherfucker. She's a badass bitch. Yeah. You go, girl. Yeah. Oh, um, I loved this episode. This was so good. <laughs> Yeah, I'm feeling it. Uh, Go to your haunted mansion. Yeah, right? Find us on the socials where we're probably going to post weird Zach Baggins music at Supposedly Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you have a story that you want us to cover or just any stories that maybe you've experienced personally, or even if you just want to say hi, hit us up at supposedlypod at gmail.com. We really want to know if you you. survived a plane crash. Or if you bought a house and know what that thing is we talked or about. Or if you hung out with Papa Roach. <laughs> I haven't hung out with Papa Roach. All right. Well, cut my life into pieces. This is supposedly. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next time on. Supposedly. Supposedly. supposedly.